This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Yeah, so uh, I sort of titled the talk Education in BC and the Revised Curriculum. Um, and it's sort of is going to be a, a little bit of an overview about where we've been coming from, where we're going, and what that looks like for me in the classroom. Uh, I want to start with kind of the caveat that I'm still early career teacher. So for, for me, I don't have um, you know decades of experience teaching in the system. So it's sort of my perspective with this new uh, implementation and how that's rolling out um, as a teacher who's sort of at this crossover between I've taught um, the previous curriculum and now rolling out this revised curriculum and what that looks like. Um, I also want to caveat it that um, what I'm saying is just my own personal experience and um, how I'm implementing it and what it's looking like at, at my school or at my, the schools that I've been at. Um, but what I'm saying is not uh, reflective necessarily of the BC Teachers Federation or the Burnaby Teachers Association, or my school. Uh, it's just my own personal sort of experiences. So, yes. Um, so uh, I wanted to, to start off my talk just uh, acknowledging that we are in the Coast Salish uh, nation's land of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Lituth, and uh, Squamish, on whose traditional territories we teach, learn, and live. This is on all of our uh, classroom doors, and uh, it's very important with our curriculum as we go into the revised curriculum and also the previous curriculum uh, to acknowledge that because the representation and the acknowledgement matters and I can talk more about what that looks like in the revised curriculum at the end if I have time. Um, so sort of where we're coming from, this was, I, I googled 20th century learner to find a picture uh, and it came up very first with 19th century learning which kind of tells you something about what we've been doing in the 1900s which is not much different than when they were doing things in the 1800s with uh, education. So you see those standard kind of desks, people, uh, students are sitting there. Um, so when you think about 19th century learning or even 20th century learning, um, if I can just have a hand not shouting out, what sort of things do you think about in terms of that education system? Structure. But raise your hand. Yes. Rote, rote learning. Rote learning, okay. Rote rhyme rhetoric. Rote rhyme rhetoric, all right, yeah. Anything else? Boring. Okay. <laughs> Raising our hands, and then I will call on you, and then you can, yes. I don't see any girls. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, there's definitely a lot of sort of homogeneity to this image, for sure. Um, lots of Lots of young, young boys there, no, no girls, no diversity. Um, so with 19th century learning um, and 20th century learning, really, um, it was, it's, the diversity in students has not really been taken into consideration. And in fact, it's trying to be almost stamped out. You want this homogeneity. Um, it's fact-driven, so this rote rhyme rhetoric kind of thing. Uh, it's teacher-centered, so teachers as the givers of information, the students as the empty vessels, which is, of course, not actually the case. They come to us with many different uh, aspects to their knowledge, um, and they are not empty vessels to be filled with facts. 
Um, it's, and it's based on a, a factory model, really. Uh, this education system in, in itself has not changed dramatically since the idea that, well, we have to produce workers for the industrial revolution. We need people who can sit and do a task, and, and that's, that's what the goal of the education system was. And that was fine back in the industrial revolution, and when we had these sort of factory models of what we were trying to, to train young, young people for. Um, and it was also driven by standardized tests. So in the end, you sit down, you write an exam, and that's apparently a judgment on your entire academic life and what you have accomplished in a three-hour, two-hour sit-down, answer 50 multiple-choice questions, 100 multiple-choice questions. And that is supposed to tell something about the students. Um, so that's kind of um, roughly not just, it says 19th century learning at the top, but I mean, really, that's been the case even in, in the 1900s. And even recently, you still have um, more old, older school teachers who are still, it's about the facts, it's facts-driven. It's uh, the diversity of the students is not acknowledged or recognized or taken into consideration. Um, so you can find tons and tons of cartoons online if you just Google factory model or even 20th century learner. This idea that you're sending them into this education system, you're weeding out all the individuality, weeding out all of the, the things that make them unique, and you're trying to spit out these, these little carbon copies of each other, basically, at the end. Um, and there's tons of cartoons like this. Um, and obviously, our education system in BC is, is very well-renowned. We have had, not just with the new revised curriculum, but for, for over a decade now, uh, international students uh, from all over the world come to uh, BC to, to take part in our education system because it is very well respected. And it's obviously, this is a caricature, um, and there's variety in this. And this is just one, one vast example of one way you could be looking at it. Um, and so um, what's really big in sort of the high school education circles, so I guess I should say I teach, I teach in a high school. Um, I teach grade 9s and 10s general science. So that's, there's biology, chemistry, physics, or science, space science. Uh, and then I teach uh, the senior level physics. Um, and so within the high school community, there's a lot of talk around, well, where are we going and what does that look like in terms of the diversity of students and inclusion. So um, one big name right now in our education uh, sort of pedagogical discussions is uh, Shelley Moore, M-O-O-R-E. M-O-O-R-E, um, and she's doing a lot of uh, work talking about how we can consider uh, where we've come from with diversity of students and where that's going to and what that looks like. Uh, so obviously, you can start off, these little green dots are supposed to be students. So the green dots are like the ideal. You have all these green dots, and they're learning, and they're sitting in their seats, and they're quiet, and whatever the case may be. So they're in this sort of classic classroom environment. And so we've gone from exclusion, where there are vast uh, varieties of uh, individuals and po parts of our population that were just not welcome in the school system a long time ago, um, or even not that long ago. And then we've got sort of this segregation. So oh, OK, these, this part of the population can go to school, but they're, they're in a separate school. They can, they can be over here. And then we've got um, integration, which was, all right, well, now they can come to the school, but they're in a separate classroom, or they have a different um, different courses that they're allowed to take and that sort of thing. And so this is kind of 
the, the movement or the shift of where um, diversity in students has come from, and this could be students with different uh, de developmental disabilities, with different learning needs, um, different sort of uh, physical abilities or disabilities. So it's been moving towards what, what is maybe better, they're not excluded, but they're still being sort of kept you know, same but separate, which is not the ideal. That's where we're moving towards something better, but it's still not really what we want to see. And so um, let's just sort of keep those little little dots in mind. And again, I can't take credit for this. This is the Shelley Moore model. So if you want to learn more about uh, inclusive education and what that's looking like with discussions around high schools and, and elementary schools, uh, she's got a, a website called Blog Some More but her last name more, M-O-O-R-E. So uh, I highly recommend it if you are interested in, in that aspect of the education system to, to look at her blog. Uh, she's also got Twitter and Instagram and things, but it's all linked to on her, on her website. Um, yeah, so the question is why change? Why do we need to change? Uh, and the answer should be fairly obvious why we're moving away from that model and why those different ways of education are not going to work anymore. Uh, one of the biggest reasons Robots are now doing a lot of the jobs that people were being trained for. You have robots who are doing this, the factory work that people are no longer doing. Um, you don't even have as many service workers anymore. People are ordering things online. People don't have to talk to a person at McDonald's. They can just go to the order and pay now function, and then you just get your food and you're done. You don't even have to interact with a person to go get fast food. Um, so. The, the goals and the aims of what you're training people for is now, is now very different because you have to train them to do things that robots and computers can't do. You have to uh, train them to be, to be thinkers and to have skills that are things that uh, cannot be replaced and mechanized or automated. Um, the other thing that's really important is now a lot of us have this lovely computer access at all times, in our pockets. And on, almost all my students do. And it is a, a source of great pleasure when we can use the device well, and a source of great pain when they're out and playing on it in class. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. But the fact remains that they have Google on their phone. So why does it matter that they memorize the different phases of mitosis? They can Google that. There's, there's no point in memorizing that. There is no point in memorizing what 15 times 14 is. There is point in learning certain skills and understanding numeracy and literacy as a concept and having number sense. Um, they, yeah, I, I mean, even when I went to high school, I was told you'll never have a calculator in your pocket at all times. <laughs> and, and we do. Of course we do. It's, that, those are our smartphones. And looking forward, that's not, yeah, memorizing things is not what's important. Uh, being able to rote, spit out things is not going to be the, the, the thing that we want to train students to do. Um, so, I, yeah, I found this cartoon and I thought it was, it was kind of a great point about why, why we want to move forward, why we want to change. Uh, so, test question, when did the pilgrims land at Plymouth Rock and Calvin and Hobbes? Calvin writes, 1620. And then he adds, as you can see, I memorized this utterly useless, useless fact 
long enough to pass a test question. I now intend to forget it forever. You have taught me nothing except how to cynically manipulate the system. Congratulations. So I, I just found this. I didn't write that. But I think it's, it's, it's um, a very valid point. I had to memorize probably, I don't know, 30 different dates when I was in world history class. And I remember none of them. And I don't think I have suffered from not memorizing certain dates because the dates are what's important. It's the cause and effect and the interaction of societies and individuals because of those events. So, um, so we have to move forward. Uh, and that's what the revised curriculum, and BC has been moving forward, obviously, beyond rote learning for a long time. This is nothing new. This is probably two decades old or more where they've been discussing what do we want students to come out of our, our schools looking like, being able to do, being uh, knowing. Um, and, and where do we go from there? So this isn't anything new. It's just they're producing a different framework for teachers so that we feel uh, more comfortable and almost more empowered to, to step away from this rote memorization, this content, content, content uh, type education system that a lot of teachers, well, all, all teachers, because we're only just changing, uh, have grown up in. And also a lot of teachers were in the school system because we succeeded in that system. So it's very hard for some teachers to try to switch the system when, well, we succeeded in that system. It was great for me. I learned a lot. I'm doing well. And, and then why do I need to change? And, and hopefully I've motivated now why we need to change because it's not, it's not those, little, uh, those little green dots that necessarily need the change. They'll succeed sometimes despite you, <laughs> oftentimes despite you, but it's, it's the, uh, the multicolored dots, the, the diversity in students that really, really do need you to support them in other ways and to consider the education system in different ways. So where we're going. So this is, I found this online. This is not my classroom. I wish it was. My classroom is very old school. I've got lab benches that are stuck to the ground. I can't move them. Uh, stools, which are super uncomfortable. After about 10 minutes, I start to squirm. So I feel really bad for the students after about 10 minutes. We don't tend to talk for more than that anyway. But uh, yeah, it, my, my school is still pretty, and it's fairly new. It's about a decade old, maybe. And it's still pretty old school in some of the classroom setups. But um, the idea is moving towards a different kind of approach. And so if you look at this picture here, again, raising your hands before shouting out, what sort of uh, ideas or thoughts or type of learning do you think is happening here? Yes. Student-directed learning. Student learning. I love it. Yes. What else? What does it look like? Yes. Collaborative. Collaborative. Excellent. Yes. Small groups. OK, small groups for sure. Yep. Yep. Brainstorming, okay. Interactive, yep. Using Okay, yes, so there's definitely technology components. Um, but you'll notice not all the students are actually on screens, which is, again, um, something to think about when we're talking about using technology. Um, so I've just added a few, few sort of comments. So the idea with where we're going is that diversity in students is, is considered, encouraged, supported, um, but not just in the instruction, which is where we've been going, but also in the curriculum itself. So the diversity is acknowledged and, and encouraged and supported within the curriculum. Um, it's skills-driven. So it's not fact-driven. It's skills. What do we want them to come out being able to do? Um, it's student-centered. 
Um, and what that means then is the role of the teacher kind of changes because you are no longer the source of all knowledge and you get to bestow it upon them when you choose the time is right. Um, it is now the students are working together to learn and, and the teacher becomes more of a facilitator. And of course there are times when they, they cannot discover or learn through you know, the activities that we're either, either able to do or just at the level that they're at where they can just discover it for themselves. But you can facilitate that understanding and at some point, yes, there's certain things that you just have to tell them. But it's focusing more on recognizing what that is versus everything, just they have to know it. There's, there's no other way around it. Ooh. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a global model. So it's not looking at the, the factory production model line anymore because that's it's not a thing anymore. Uh, it's looking at this, this interconnected high-tech society. Uh, so do they know what's going on in other parts of the world? How do they interact with the, that content? Um, how do they use technology? How do they use technology appropriately? Uh, learning how to find information online that is, is valid, is reliable, is credible. Um, learning how to be good digital citizens. Being able to just use the technology. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, apps and different things now that they can they can use uh, to support their learning that um, didn't even exist you know a couple of years ago um, and then also driven driven by the goal of developing a global citizen so we are interconnected there's no way around it and how do we get these students to become citizens good citizens and how do we get them to become global citizens and recognize um, not just what's happening within their own local community, but, but worldwide. So that's sort of where we're going. Um, uh, and in terms of this diversity and inclusion piece, so um, again, I'm stealing this just right out of Shelley Moore's talks, basically. But uh, so she goes, all right, this is inclusion. You have all these little colored dots. They were, they were different in some aspect. First, they were excluded. Then they were segregated. Then they were, they were integrated. Uh, and then she says, all right, well, well, this is inclusion now. All the, the blue dots and the red dots and the yellow dots, they get to come into the classroom, they get to come into the school, and they're included. Um, and that was where she was at, I think, um, a couple of years ago. That was, that was the end. All right, good. We're done. We've included them. They're in there. Yay. But uh, the problem is, is that uh, no one's a green dot. No one's really a green dot, because that's sort of the standard classic. You are, let's make them green. And oh, what do we do with the, the red student? Uh, if they're not green, we're going to take them out of the classroom, put them somewhere else, give them to the, the red teacher, and, and bring them back when they're green. But that's, that's not going to happen, because everybody is actually has a vast uh, variety of capabilities and things that they, they are strong in, things that, areas of growth. And so no one's green, everyone's different colors, and that's the idea of where you're moving forward is, as Shelley Moore says, you're trying to brighten their colors, not change their colors. So that's kind of part of the idea of looking at student-centered learning is that you're looking at the individual student and what they need and where their areas of growth are. Um, so that's sort of the, the newer model of inclusion is acknowledging, respecting, supporting that diversity and not trying to turn them into these little factory models. They're not, no one's going to be green because no one's green. Um, another thing that's, that's floating around in the education world right now is um, 
Claude Rose did a TEDx talk, I think it was TEDx, some, some sort of TED talk. Um, he's got a book out called The Myth of Average. Um, and just really, really briefly, I've heard it like 10 different times in different staff meetings and protee things. But um, so I'm just paraphrasing what I have heard. I have not read his book or seen his whole TED talk. Uh, but what I have heard from my staff meetings and professional development is the idea that he was looking um, at this idea of average. And he did it first by um, considering the Canadian military and fighter pilots. And they were trying to build the perfect cabin in the aircraft so that um, they could in enhance the reaction time and the capabilities of the pilots because already they're very high, highly qualified, highly skilled. But if you have the perfect cockpit that everyone can reach the buttons appropriately and everything's exactly designed perfectly, it should increase their abilities even more. Oh. Uh, I'm going to put that down because I talk with my hands. Um, so so they, they went and they measured all their pilots and they measured the arms and the legs and the yeah, waist, hip, butt, torso, whatever, everything. Uh, and then they decided, okay, we're going to average out this, average out this, average out this, um, and we're going to build the perfect cockpit. Uh, and then as he says, guess, guess how many people fit into the perfect cockpit? Zero. Nobody fits into the average cockpit because no one is average because everyone has more than one dimension. Uh, they have different leg lengths or different torso lengths or different arm lengths. And so no one fit into the perfect cockpit. Uh, and instead, they came up with all these things that we now take for granted, like in our cars, like adjustable seats. Uh, where you can change the height and how much leg room you have and various things like that. Um, and so the argument then is in the education system. Again, you have students who have so many dimensions. And the dimensions change every day sometimes. And so then the question becomes, well, if there's no such thing as average, you cannot design a curriculum for the average student because there is no average student. Uh, what you have to do is consider every single need. And then you want to look at not the, not the um, average, you want to look at the range. That's what that data is good for. And that's what he argues, and obviously it makes sense. What you care about is where's the bottom end, where's the top end, and can you design for something in between? And then um, what, they also say, what he also says, and, and Shelley Moore is a big fan of this, and she says this in her talk, so again, totally just plagiarizing from her, um, is that, well, think about this curriculum. If we make this curriculum adjustable, then the other thing to think about is when the pilots get into their cockpit, who makes the adjustments? The pilot does. So when you're in a classroom, who should make the adjustments? The student. They should have that own, their own self-determination and the ability to be given, here's the range, here's your access point, here's your stretch point, here's everything in between. And they should be able to ha um, have the ability to access or approach the curriculum where they're at and then stretch to where they need to be going. And so that's kind of the idea with the new curriculum. OK, so uh, where we've talked about where we've been. We've talked about where we're going and then why. Um, so I'm going to show you what the old curriculum kind of looked like for us teachers. Uh, oh, no, never mind. Just kidding. One more thing to motivate. Uh, so big ideas. Also, why do we teach what we teach? Um, so. 
this is, this is sort of always in debate, like why, why am I teaching this? Why, why am I wanting them to know this? And, and then when you decide, well, what am I going to assess? Is that what is important? Is this what I want them to know? What, what do I want them to know? What's important? Um, and so I heard a story from one social studies teacher who was talking to another one. They were saying, well, well, why do we teach Napoleon? And the other social studies teacher was like, well, we just we teach Napoleon. That's what you do. You teach Napoleon, which is a terrible answer for why we're teaching something. Because we've always done it. Great. Uh, we know as humanists, we're, we're not big fans of doing something just because of tradition. Uh, ask yourself why you're doing it. Um, and there is a reason why they teach Napoleon. Uh, it's because it's talking about power structures and what can happen with uh, powerful leaders. And then you can look at that and say, OK, well, who else could we look at? If that's what we're actually trying, well, there we go. I mean, there's a variety of diverse examples that you can use. So, so why teach Napoleon? Fine, use that as an example, but then think about what else you could bring in if that's what you're trying to get from the students. Um, I'm teaching grade nine this year. Um, this is the second time through with the revised curriculum. So I implemented it last year with my grade nines. Um, and then I'm, I'm sort of rejigging it this year with my second round of revised curriculum with my grade nines. Uh, meiosis and mitosis has been in the grade nine curriculum from before it was revised. That's been in there for, I don't know, at least since 2006. Um, but then why? Why do we teach meiosis and mitosis? Why is that important? Does anyone, again, raise your hand. Does anyone have any idea why? Like why? Why does it matter? Yes. Okay, yeah, for sure. Any other ideas? Why, why does it matter? Why do they need to know this? Okay, perfect. All right. So um, not just content, though, but also a, a skill. So meiosis and mitosis um, is really understanding process. These are processes. Cell division is a process. Um, and meiosis is just the cell division to produce gametes or sex cells. Uh, mitosis is the process in which you get, um, well, in humans' case, you get uh, your diploid cells, your co exact copies of your cells. So meiosis and mitosis, you're understanding process. You're teaching them a skill. Um, and it's also, again, moving from this memory-based process. Because um, I, I used to teach, and I've still even taught, you, know, you have to know the stages of mitosis. And then I started asking myself, why? Why does it matter that they know prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, and this is what happens in prophase, and in metaphase, the chromatids line up in the middle of the cell. And why? Why does it matter? But what really matters is what happens at the end? What, what is the difference between meiosis and mitosis? Can you can compare and contrast? And you understand this is really where variety within species comes about, and this is the basis of understanding evolution by natural selection. If we can't understand where variety comes from, and it's from meiosis, that's where variety within species comes from, well, plus mutations, um, you can't understand evolution by natural selection. And that is fundamental to the entire biological field. Now, I'm not a biologist, so it took me a while to kind of figure out why, why I'm teaching it, because I don't do the senior level biology courses, and I didn't take a biology course after grade 10. So for me, I'm like, what, why does it matter? But understanding evolution by natural selection, I get that. That is important. That is important to be a scientifically literate individual. Um, and 
I think, yeah, just sort of recognizing why, why we're doing what we're doing, and then that will help you how you teach it. Because if we're doing meiosis and mitosis, then I'm not going to teach it through rote memorization of do you know prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase. Who cares? What I want to test is at the end, do you understand why there's variety because of these things? Or why there's not in the case of mitosis? Or what happens if mitosis goes wrong? And then they can understand cancer. Uh, yeah. So this is what the old curriculum looked like for 8, 9, and 10. This is taken directly. I just screen capped. Uh, we had uh, what were called IRPs. And what that stands for? Oh my goodness. Integrated resource package. Um, so we would have IRPs, or these integrated resource packages, for every single course. And they were pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. Um, and this was kind of what they had at the beginning of these integrated resource packages for science. And they say, all right, well, here are the processes and skills. And they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven little points. And they said, OK, that's, that's, those are the skills. That's, that's it. And then it was content. So in the life science, it hasn't actually changed that much in terms of content. So cells and systems for biology in grade 9, uh, reproduction, or grade 8, sorry, reproduction in grade 9. Uh, sustainability of ecosystems has moved from grade 10. But that's, that's where it was up until last year. Um, and then you can sort of see the flow. Uh, and some, some flowed, and some did not flow well with each other. Sometimes they see little packages. And they're still, like in grade 9, you do characteristics of electricity. So they learn static electricity and current electricity, voltmeters, ammeters, all that good stuff. You get to play around with circuits. It's, it's fun. Uh, they don't see it again unless they take grade 12 physics. So um, again, the idea is, well, if you're teaching content, then that doesn't really make sense because they're going to forget it by the time they hit grade 12. But if you're teaching um, skills and thought processes, then it, do it doesn't matter what the content is because the content is a step through to the skills. Um, if you look at the integrated resource packages from the previous curriculum, um, and this is still true of the grade 10, 11, and 12 that has not been implemented yet, keeps getting pushed back. Although I have implemented the revised grade 10 in my classroom, because my grade 9 saw revised last year. So it makes no sense to do not revised this year. Um, but grade 11s and grade 12s for sure have not seen the new revised curriculum. And what you would look at in that integrated resource package, you don't have to be able to read this. Um, this is one topic. This is the reproduction section of biology. Um, and it's basically, there's three things they say it's expected that students will know. And then there is a checklist. Um, and it is always said on those integrated resource packages that these are things they might be able to do, that they could show that they have learned those things. Uh, but what it's become is literally a checklist. So it makes sense for maybe new teachers who have not taught the, the, uh, the course before to go here and decide, oh, this is the kind of things I should be teaching, all right, and it kind of makes sense. But um, as you go along in your career, uh, using a tick list as a way to teach is not really the way to go, especially when this checklist really is content. So um, like one of the things, identify the contents of the nucleus, chromosomes, DNA, genes, and nucleolus. Great, fine. Show it to them. Give them a diagram. Let them have a look at it. That's wonderful. 
testing them, do you know how to label this diagram? Is there, does, it, does that matter? Probably not really, because they're never not going to have access to some sort of information system. Um, so that's not really, like the things that they have here are very content heavy. And, and it's, it really is, it's, it's like a checklist. It's not supposed to be, but that's what it kind of becomes. Um, this is the, the new grade nine curriculum. So that was a very small subset of this, oh gosh, 40, 60 page integrated resource package for a grade nine science. Uh, now it is two pages. Yes. There's the front, there's the back. Um, and originally I was like, no, 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 this is terrible, this is the worst, I can't do this. And then we were thinking about new teachers and this is, it's kind of daunting, only two pages, because there's a lot of freedom there. Um, and, and that is scary, and that is scary to think about. But then teachers are professionals, we, we have been trained. Um, we, we can look at this and, and the new uh, teachers who are going through the education system now. We have a number of student teachers in our school and they are learning to look at this and think about what does this, this new curriculum look like, revised curriculum, I shouldn't say new, revised curriculum look like uh, for them. So what's fantastic is at the top there are four big ideas and in general in almost every single course from kindergarten all the way to grade 12 the new, the revised curriculum is two pages for every single course or every single um, topic. Um, and they're all grouped with big ideas at the top. And it's somewhere between three and five. And that's really the sort of driving force of every single unit. So unit one about biology, cells are derived from cells. That's the big picture. And now there's argument around like, for example, with the, the physics, um, around their, their idea of what the big ideas are. Um, because I would say at the senior level, when I look at these, the tentative curriculums that still have not been implemented and they're still revising the revised curriculum for those. In grade 11, I look at the big ideas and I go, that's, that's not the big idea in physics. So there's still debate around that and they're still maybe working on that and maybe this changes. But the idea of grouping things around big ideas is a great idea because that focuses the students as well. You say in this unit, here is the, the thing. This is what I want you to know. And everything else is building to this big thing. So you can start at the beginning, you can remind them at every single class, every single lesson, here's why we're doing this. So then they go, why are we doing this? Well, we want to understand this. We want to understand this thing. And so it's sort of, um, Giving, giving teachers an idea of this, this is the why, this is what we want them to know. Um, content is now one little column on the side, which has a lot of people freaked out. Oh my God, the content is tiny. They're never gonna learn anything, it's terrible. Um, which again, definitely is, is a challenge. You look at the fact that the content is, is literally point form. There's not a lot of, um, extension upon that. Now the curriculum um, does come, this is the, the most basic format. You can actually download them off the BC government website and they do come with elaborations. So um, a lot of these, there's following annotations and discussions about what kind of questions or, or concepts would fit within this content. But the content is now not the driving factor. So we, we um, at least within my, my department, we take the small content column on the side as an indication of what actually matters. 
and, and it's not the content. So uh, asexual reproduction, mitosis, different forms. Sexual reproduction, meiosis, human sexual reproduction. That was two and a half months of my school year already this year, was just those four content. But what you're doing is you're teaching that content through what they call curricular competencies. And so curricular competencies depend on what you're teaching. And obviously, as a science teacher, I'm looking at the curricular competencies of science. Um, and these sort of map through the grades, and they build. And these are what we're assessing on. So we, we do still kind of assess on, on content in some ways. But what you're really trying to assess is these curricular competencies. And so what do those look like? Again, I know you can't read this. I just want to show you the fact that it's, it's two pages. And look, the second page is all curricular competencies, too. And the big headings are questioning and predicting, planning and conducting, processing and analyzing data and information, evaluating, applying and innovating, and communicating. And those are the things that they say are important in science. If you come out of science with those competencies, with those skills, then you've created a good, well-rounded, scientifically literate individual, hopefully. And so within that, there's various um, sort of sub-curricular competencies. Um, so under questioning and predicting, for example, uh, can they demonstrate a sustained intellectual curiosity about a scientific topic or problem of personal interest? So this ties into the idea that we want to look at the individual and what's important and interesting to them. And obviously, you cannot leave it super open-ended and say, all right, go and discover something about anything you happen to be interested in. So it's this idea of guided inquiry. So um, within the uh, asexual reproduction unit, one of the things I, I did was I said, OK, well, we have learned all these different uh, ways that organisms can reproduce asexually. Go find an animal that you think is really cool, or an organism. I guess animals don't tend to reproduce asexually. Well, multicellular animals don't tend to reproduce asexually. Um, go find an organism you're interested in or you think is cool. And I gave them a list of some examples. For example, starfish or bacteria or um, flatworms. There's, there's like a ton of different things. I said, find one, figure out how it reproduces, Tell me about it, describe the organism, and then come up with why this is advantageous for it to reproduce asexually. So instead of standing in the classroom and going, these are the animals that reproduce this way, blah, 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 blah. boring, uh, boring for me, boring for the students, um, they got to go and look up their own animal. And a ton of students, or organisms, tons, uh, you know, some students will do the bare minimum and look up their organism and write it down, and there we go, done. But other students get really, really into it when they have that freedom to go and look up this thing that you're interested in within reason, within guided reason. So um, uh, another one I did was with my grade 10s this year. We have a genetics unit that's been brought back into grade 10. Um, and so we went through and they learned about Punnett squares and DNA and, and all those sorts of things. Um, but then I said, okay, well, there's tons of interesting genetic technologies um, and current debates and discussions around genetics. There's, there's tons of it. It's a great current topic. And so I gave them a few suggestions of various things, and they had to come up with their own question to investigate. And it had to be an open-ended question. There could be no right or wrong answer. 
They had to look at multiple different pages on the web, on, web, on, on the web, on, on the internet. Um, they had to evaluate it for credibility um, and validity and who's the author and what's their purpose and all that good stuff, which brings in the digital literacy. Um, and then they had to be able to look at what are different sides. So it had to be a question that had no right or wrong answer. There had to be multiple sides, at least two sides to the question. Um, and this is sort of where they're trying to move with this inquiry-based um, model as well, uh, is look at questions that, that are hard, that you can't just Google and get an answer right away. Uh, so some of my students did, um, are, are designer babies ethical? And so they had to t look at, well, what is the science behind it and explain the science, which is Googleable, but they do have to do research because I wouldn't tell them. Uh, and then they had to come up with their own conclusion. And I said, I don't care what your conclusion is, but you have to back it up with evidence. So if you make a claim, you have to give a reason and you have to back it up with evidence. And that's really sort of what, what if I have students who leave grade 12 and all they can do is know that if they make a claim, they have to back it up with evidence, I will feel somewhat successful that they have become scientifically literate. Um, so yeah, some did, um, are designer babies ethical? Some people did, uh, should we be using, uh, should we be doing stem cell research to um, investigate treating disease? Uh, some, uh, some students did selective breeding. Uh, should we continue to selectively breed when there are potential harms to the animal at a certain stage? Um, goes on, there was, I can't even remember, there's a vast variety. One, one student was learning about Henrietta Lacks in another class. She was the, um, the black woman whose uh, uh, cells were taken from her without um, asking, and they've done a lot of genetic, uh, a lot of testing, biological testing and studies using her cells uh, that they never actually got permission to extract in the first place. Uh, and she was like, oh, I'm so interested in that. So she went all in and started talking about um, ethics within using biological samples. It's like, great, fantastic, good. Do that if you're interested in that. So there was just opening it up to sort of what they were interested in. And I told them they couldn't um, just go off and silently research it. They did have to check with me first, is this a valid question that I can be asking and looking at? I did have to veto a few because they were yes or no, or they're just it, it was not a question that they would be able to have researched. Um, but yeah, they really took it on their own. And then I had them do sort of gallery walks where we had the, the principal and the vice principal come in too and look at all their, they created posters because it was old school like that because I don't trust technology when I have more than two students who need to use it. Um, so we, they walked around with posters and showed off what they learned and explained it to their, their peers uh, and to me and to, to the um, administration. And it was really, really great. And I don't think I would have done that if I hadn't have had that freedom within this new curriculum to really open it up to the students and say, okay, well, being able to ask a question, first of all, is a skill. Being able to research a question is a skill. Being able to find an answer or come up with a conclusion is a skill. And being able to communicate it to others is also a skill. Uh, and it all ties into these competencies of questioning and predicting, processing and analyzing information, um, evaluating, communicating, and some were even able to apply. So take what they had learned and say, well then, if we can do this, what would be the next step or what would be happening going forward? So the, the curricular competencies are really what we're, we're supposed to be assessing, what we're trying to assess. And obviously it's, it's, it's a shift. It's a massive shift and it takes time and, and we're working on it. Um, 
but it does open it up to a lot, a lot more um, freedom for, for me and for the students. Um, so again, if you look at content, this is just the biology from the previous integrated resource package. Uh, this is the new content for the grade nines. Um, and, and I did two and a half months on this. So this is not something that's, you know, minimizing what they're learning in science. In fact, I think it's enhancing it because you can look at this much deeper almost when you have less content um, because you're not thinking, oh, God, they have to know this and this and this and this and this and we can't stop or we can't do this. We can't go into this because there's no time. Um, this, this gives you a little bit more of a breathing room for sure. Cloning? Uh, well, cloning would be, I mean, in mitosis, let's say sexual reproduction, they're cloning. Um, but they can also look in, in cloning. And actually, I had a few students when they were doing their genetics project looked into cloning. Um, that would be, yeah, I'd stick it in there somewhere. You could talk about it for sure. I did. <laughs> Why not? They were interested in it. They know about cloning. They've, they've heard about it. It's in science fiction. And, and Dolly the sheep is a real life clone. It's, it's happening. So might as well stick it in there. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. Somewhere in there, probably. <laughs> or you could, yeah, I mean, it's tied in. It's, it's linked. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to, to talk just a little bit about, um, so we, as teachers, are assessing these curricular competencies. Um, thanks. Moving on, but not quickly enough. Uh, the students are supposed to be assessing themselves on what are called core competencies. And this is a thread that is tied through kindergarten all the way through. And these three things are something that they are supposed to be developing and working on, and then also reflecting upon their own learning and what they're doing in the various courses to try to grow within their own profiles of communication, thinking, and personal and social responsibility. So those are the three things that um, they've looked at. Well, what do we want 21st century students to uh, look like? to be able to do. Um, and these are really the, th the three things it pairs down to. Communicating, thinking, uh, and then there is creative thinking and critical thinking, um, and then personal and social responsibility. So are they able to advocate for themselves? Are they able to understand where they themselves fit within certain systems? Do they understand what those certain systems are? And can they put themselves into the perspectives of others? Um, so. These are the three that at the end of the year they, they self-assess on, but we try to sort of do self-assessment at the end of each term, where they go and they, they give themselves a grade. They say, well, am I beginning, developing, achieving, excelling in various parts of communication, thinking, and personal social. Um, and this takes a lot of, of supporting them, of kind of training them almost, of, of teaching them, well, here's how you, you really think about your own thinking. Because it's not easy. I don't think it's easy even for, for adults. A lot of adults don't think about how they're thinking um, or how they're growing or where their strengths are or where their, their areas of growth are or, uh, as we used to say, weaknesses. Um, people don't like acknowledging those things. Uh, and the fear was um, a lot of people who aren't within the education system or don't talk to students very regularly, they're just, they're just going to give themselves fours. They're, just gonna, they're all going to say, I'm great at everything. And, and the truth is they, they don't. And I'm super, super impressed with my grade 9s all the time. My grade 10s, eh, we're working on them. But my grade 9s, I, they impress me all the time so much. They are so honest about their own learning. Um, so I ask them, all right, well, where do you think you are on the scale? Two, three, 
four, yeah, there's not very many who say they're right at the bottom. There's not very many who say they're right at the top. But I say, okay, prove it to me. Tell me why. And a lot of times they're harsher on themselves than I would be. They think, oh, I'm, I'm not so good at this. Like, Look at this. Look at what you did. This is amazing. This is your evidence. You made a claim. Here's your evidence. I don't think your claim mat matches your evidence. Here's your piece of work. Here's your graph. Here's your, here's your report. Here's what you were talking about in class today with me. You told me the answer. You knew what you were talking about. Um, so they're really good at that. They're also really good at being sometimes brutally honest. Um, so I'll have them self-reflect at the end of every test. And I ask them, well, how did you prepare for this? What did you do to study? Did you, um, you know, and sort of I guide it with the grade nines. Did you quiz a friend? Did you read over notes? Did you Google things? What did you do? Um, and there are the students who don't do well who will say, honestly, I didn't really study. And they are very, very honest about it. They will tell me, oh, you know, I didn't sleep well last night, so I didn't really know what I was doing. And they'll really recognize when, when their learning is being affected by various things. And they'll come to me and say, I can't, I can't write the quiz today. Um, you know, this and that was going on. My, my dad was sick, this, that. And OK, fine, great. We'll do it another time. Because now there's so much more freedom to say, all right, here's where you're at. Here's where you need to be. And if I'm assessing you on something in particular, I don't want you to not be at your best. Because then that's not beneficial to anyone. You're not showing what you're capable of if you're not in the in the proper mindset or in the right environment. And they, by self-assessing themselves on these competencies, um, that's, that's part of this personal idea, is knowing where, where they're at when they come into the classroom and what they can do that day. Um, and so I know with, with humanists, the critical thinking is always, we need to teach students critical thinking. We need to teach them to be critical thinkers. It's on there. It's on the revised curriculum as one of the big things. It is the core competency, other than communication and personal social critical thinking along with creative thinking. Um, and so there are learner profiles to look at the students as they go through the grades to think about where they're at in terms of critical thinking. So basically the idea is we're emphasizing to them all the time this concept of expand, uh, expanding and growing. So um, the idea of that you're able to extend what you're, where you're at now and where you're going um, and not just, well, this is where you're a bad critical thinker, you're a good critical thinker. No, no, no. There's different stages that you can be at, and some of it just starts with, we have these different profiles, and I didn't put them up because they're all, it's too, too much ink, too much text. But the idea is that they're expanding out, and they're working on developing and designing, analyzing and critiquing, questioning and investigating. And that is our curricular competencies. That's, and really, in science, we're not, we're, we're sort of changing a little bit how we're assessing and things, but really what these curricular competencies is, is the, the scientific method. And we've been doing that all along in science class. So now it's just really focusing on each process and each procedure. Um, okay. Uh, do I want to go into that? Ooh. Okay, I'll do a really quick three minutes, hopefully, uh, on the idea of incorporating indigenous perspectives because I've had a lot of people um, not a lot. I've had people come up and say, oh, this, this new curriculum, uh, they want to incorporate indigenous perspectives, and what does that look like? And, and just a lot of, I think, misinformation and misconceptions about what that means and, and how it looks in the classroom. Uh, so I, I kind of start off the beginning of every year with my students, what is science? Uh, so if I was to, to pose that question to you all, again, raise your hand before you call out. What is science? What would you say? Yes. A systematic way of looking at what the 
Okay, great. Yep. Yep. Oh, okay. All right. Like that. Yep. Okay, evidence based. So, um, with my sort of. Oh, pardon? Observation and experimentation. Observation, experimentation. Yeah, yeah. I always go for ethnological definitions, at least part of it. So, cutting, right? Size, cuts, cutting mm -hmm. up into parts, cutting those parts. Ooh, I like that. Okay, great, cutting it up into parts. So um, what, we, what we often come to, with my, my juniors at least, is the idea that, well, well, science is about the world and is about reality. And we are trying to understand the world in reality and trying to explain it in a way that is consistent and um, in a way that describes and, also make, and is also predictive. And if we can see something or test something that doesn't match what we think we understand about the world, we have to change that. We have to change what we think we know. Um, but it's really, it's, it's about looking at the world. It's about understanding and looking at the world. Um, so when we're talking about incorporating uh, indigenous perspectives, um, there's a really good resource put out by the First Nations Education Steering Committee. Uh, and one of the really big criticisms with this idea of trying to incorporate indigenous perspectives within our classrooms and uh, through Truth and Re Reconciliation and through even the previous curriculum and now this revised curriculum, uh, you do need to incorporate indigenous perspectives throughout every single curricular area. Um, and that is um, a requirement and an expectation. Um, but one of the criticisms was that there are no resources available for science teachers in particular. Because for social studies, it makes sense. You can talk about the residential schools. You can talk about the systemic uh, impacts of that and other things um, in Canada. You can talk about it across the world. Um, it makes sense in social studies. It makes sense in, in English. You can read the stories. You can read books. You can bring in speakers. You can do all this stuff. And in science and math, um, it, it's a little bit harder. And partly that is because we don't have a lot of indigenous teachers. Um, and so part of it is we, we were not exposed to that. And, and you don't want to present things incorrectly or in a way that is not authentic. And you don't want to appropriate um, their own um, stories or their own ways of, of teaching um, or misappropriate it. Uh, so, First, First Nations Education Steering Committee is um, put together by um, indigenous people who have come together. They are uh, multiple bands who have um, produced many resources. And one that's amazing and I'm a huge fan of is the Science for First Peoples. And this is actually, if you go to the Finesque website, this is available online for free to download. And it's like 200 pages of amazing, amazing stuff. And you know that you can use it without fear of misappropriating things because they have a-okayed it and approved it for teaching in the classroom. Um, and this is for grades five to nine, um, but obviously the future classes, you'll hopefully incorporate it. So just super quick, um, this is the little snapshot of the grade 10 um, content column, Ooh, content column of the new curriculum, revised curriculum. Um, and so we do ecology is one of the, oh no, this is grade nine now. This is the grade nine. So there's 
effects of solar radiation, blah, 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 matter cycles, sustainability of systems. And then at the bottom, one of the pieces of content is First Nations knowledge of interconnectedness and sustainability. Um, and so the fear becomes, well, how do you, how do, you do that? Because I, I didn't know how to do that. And so you go to the, this finesque resource where there are other resources and other professional development um, courses being laid out. Um, and this is the finesque resource. And they pulled that out and they pulled together, well, here's how we can talk about it. Um, what can we learn? How can we talk about it? And tying it in. Um, so this is an example of one activity they've presented. Um, and it's basically uh, a fake memo from a, um, from a band uh, to the Sasquatch fish farm uh, talking about fish farming. So I did probably a week and a half on fish farming with my grade nines this year because that is part of, we, we talk super briefly about various forms of sexual reproduction in grade nine. And so you go, oh yeah, and fish, external or external fertilization, what's bad about that? Oh, well, the gametes can get washed away by um, rivers and they're exposed, blah, 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 blah. Um, but then you can go, you can tie this into so much more because we have wild salmon that spawn just outside of our school. So we were able to go for a walk. We were able to go see the wild salmon, uh, which is part of the idea um, that comes from indigenous knowledge, but it's not exclusive to indigenous learning, is this idea of place-based learning. Where are we and what can we learn from the land that we're on? Um, and then we talked about fish farming and what were the, the benefits and the disadvantages, uh, not just uh, reproductively in terms of getting stocks, fish stocks up and things, but also then you can tie it in to the ethics. Um, and this was really um, kind of timely because right around this time they were talking about UNDRIP, the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, um, and about the fact that if there was fish farms on indigenous land um, and they don't want them there, then through this UN Declaration for Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP, uh, they shouldn't be put on the land if they say no. That's, that's what UNDRIP says. So we had, we had a whole like uh, 80 minute discussion about that in science class. And it was tied in to the idea of fish farming and reproduction, but it was also so much more than that because now with the revised curriculum, we, we don't just have to do this is science, this is math. This is social studies, because in, in real life, they are not segregated. That, it's, it's life, and it's all blended together. So being able to apply the understanding and knowledge that they had learned about, well, how do fish farms work scientifically, but also then economically, socially, um, in terms of UNDRIP and indigenous perspectives. And it's just bringing in what's happening locally. We have these debates currently locally about our fish farms. Up by Port Hardy, there's a fish farm that's um, indigenous people are, are protesting right now. So um, it's important to acknowledge and um, include things that are occurring on our own land, I think. Um, and then, yeah, I have, an, I have other examples, but blah, 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 blah. Whatever. Anyway, that's it. I can answer more questions later. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much.